0: It's good prayer for the beginning of the year, isn't it? That we might be one. Um, before we jump in here really quick, we are going to have communion at the end of the service. If you came in and you weren't able to grab one of those, I want to encourage you to grab uh, some elements on the table out in the foyer. And while you're doing that, um, I do want to say thank you again for just kind of following protocols and just different aspects of, of COVID and, and your flexibility there. That's been extremely... Uh, helpful and you've modeled uh, generosity in the midst of that so I want to thank you for for doing that. I want to share with you in August of 1996 now full disclosure so in the first service I did this um, to earn a few brownie points but my wife is not in here right now Um, so maybe you might share it with her on Facebook later and say, did you hear what your husband said at the beginning of the service? It was really, it's really good. But uh, in August of 96, 25 years ago, I married the person who became the most influential person in my life for good, uh, for my good. It was my wife, Shelly. Now again, brownie points, right? I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Good way to start. But here's the deal, and, and I know a bunch of you have figured this out, uh, and if you haven't, Maybe I'm doing premarital, I think I'm doing premarital counseling with like four different couples right now, Um, which might be a record, but uh, you're going to learn this, and just the reality, when you marry somebody, you inherit some of their family members too. Have you figured that one out? Okay. Now, even if those family members aren't even around, they could be dead. You still get some of their influence. You still inherit some of that person's people in how they respond to things and different stuff. So you inherit a lot of different things from the other side when you get married, when you get together, whatever the case is. Now, uh, when I married into Shelley's family, I inherited a whole lot more than just people. Uh, she had a whole Christian heritage that came with her, and that was a real blessing to me. It was a heritage I didn't necessarily have in that fullness. And so that was a really huge blessing to me. But one of the other things that I got to inherit, one of the things that I received in that marriage, was a family verse. And I know I've maybe shared this with you before, what that verse is, probably because it's just so important, but um, a lot of times when we pray, even as our family right now, as as we pray, we'll recite that verse. And just this last week, we had a great time in Oklahoma with Shelly's family over Christmas, and that was, it was a real blessing to be able to spend that time with them, Uh, particularly right now when everybody's Movement is limited. We we were all healthy and were able to get together with her whole family. And uh, even on Thursday, as we got ready to leave for the airport in OKC, we uh, we gathered in the living room and uh, Shelly's dad prayed. And then at the end of it, we recited our family verse, Psalm nineteen fourteen. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That's the family verse our family verse, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable, would be pleasing to God. He's my strength. He's my redeemer. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to him. Now, here's the deal. <clears throat> if you say that's your family verse, that has implications, <laughs> because if the words of your mouth and the meditations of your hearts, the things that you dwell on, are not acceptable to God, it gets pretty obvious real quick, right? It becomes disingenuous, really, if you say that this is our family verse, but then you act and speak in ways that are totally contrary to that. It doesn't make any sense. You know, we, we can get it framed. In fact, we, we did this a couple years ago. We got the, one of those vinyl things and put it on glass and put it in a frame. Shelly's family verse, that family verse hangs in the hallway of Shelly's parents' home down in Oklahoma. We've got a vinyl of it that we still need to put on the wall, yeah, but it's, it's rolled up in a little thing. But, but there it is, it's our family verse. You can put that on the wall all you want, but if the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart are not acceptable to God, your life essentially betrays the family verse. Does that make sense? It just, they don't go together. So today what we're doing is we're beginning a year-long focus, kind of settling in on a family verse of sorts in John chapter 17. Uh, We'll dive deeper into why we're doing that here in just a minute, but as a reminder, the passage is this, John 17, verses 20 through 23, you'll see it on the screen. This is Jesus praying. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then here it is. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I want to give you some context for this. So Jesus had just spent some time at a final meal at a table with these disciples, these people that he had gathered, these men and women that he had gathered uh, from his ministry for three years. And uh, he's done this and he's met with them at a table, but then he's done that because he's about to go do something else. He's, He's on his way to go pray in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's carrying the weight of what's about to happen next. He's about to be tortured, crucified, buried, all that kind of different stuff. He's about to face all of that for you and for me, for those people he's sitting around the table with. And uh, he goes into this garden, he begins to pray. And they're, they're incredible words. Father, if, if it's possible, take this away from me. I, I can't. You know, take this cup away from me. I don't want to drink. It's poison. It's just, it's killing me. He, he was so overwhelmed with anxiety in the garden, he sweat drops of blood. So this is a huge weight that he's carrying. And and so what Jesus is doing in between the meal and in between going to the Garden of Gethsemane is he takes this moment and he prays. He prays specifically for his followers, for the disciples. And so he prays for his family. It's really, all of John 17 is really beautiful. It's really an incredible prayer. And he prays that God would keep those disciples close, he prays that they would really truly experience the joy of oneness with God, that connection with God, and that oneness with each other, and that, that they might live a life so connected to God that in the darkness of the world they find themselves, they're just bright, they shine like the light. And so it's clear from this prayer that he desperately loves these people, loves them enough to pray what comes next. Jesus knew the world that the disciples were going to find themselves in. Um, once the resurrection, once the crucifixion, the resurrection took place. He knew the world that they were going to find themselves in—the Roman world at that day, which is they were occupied by Rome. Uh, really, the way to describe it is empire. The empire of Rome was built upon the ability to divide people and conquer people. Divide and conquer and establish a foothold. Divide. Okay? And that, that's how you build an empire. Without creating divisions, the systems and structures of empire just don't exist. They, they don't work. So to get things done, what you've got to do really ultimately is you've got to not just conquer a people. You've got to get those people to conquer one another. And so you move in and you introduce division. You pit people against one another, playing to their weakest inclinations. It's not unlike today. The success of your side is kind of contingent upon your ability to vilify the other side and make sure your side looks better than the other side. And the Romans, during Jesus' day, who wanted to conquer and wanted to build this empire, they had a built-in advantage. Because the nation that they found themselves in, of Israel, was already divided. It was already divided. So Rome's strategies, I mean, it was easy for them to go in. The nation of Israel considered itself a religious nation, with religious people in it. And yet, the Romans had this advantage that the religious people had already created the divisions for them. They'd already created the divisions. For example, in Jesus' day, you had the Judeans, the Judeans. So the Judeans were kind of the very outwardly spoken religious majority, okay? They, they, they were the uber-religious people. They, they, uh, their lives specifically, their response to the people that were around them tended to betray the family verses that they loved to quote all the time, Okay? But their main agenda was honestly to make sure that divisions were maintained based on strict religious code. So we've got to make sure that these divisions are maintained. Anytime they're not maintained, we get into trouble and our power structure begins to falter. So we've got to make sure that we create these divisions. And by doing that, what happens is they create other people groups to a certain extent. And so there, you have groups like the Samaritans. So you have the Judeans, the uber-religious, then you've got the Samaritans. The Samaritans were what the Judeans would call half-breeds. Religiously homeless people, essentially, because they weren't allowed to participate with the Judeans when it came to religious practices. Um, they were people with lesser rights. They were generally poor. They'd been cast off to religiously fend for themselves. They couldn't check the preferred box. And so the Judeans didn't really want anything to do with the Samaritans. And it was kind of a mutual feeling, okay? But it also created other groups. There were other groups in that land at that time too, the Galileans. Now see, the Galileans, they were also Jewish, just like the Judeans. So they had that going for them. They had the heritage. They just weren't as nationalistic as the Judeans. They didn't tie all of this together as much as other people did. But the Galileans, they couldn't, they couldn't even though they had the heritage, they just they didn't have the social clout, they didn't have the political clout, they didn't have all of these other things lined up to bridge those social and economic and, and even ethnic gaps. Okay. Then, then you had the people from Decapolis. Decapolis were like these ten cities that were founded by the Greeks near Galilee. Yeah, those people, okay? (laughs) Those people showed up with their own language, their own culture, their own customs, their own practices. Yeah, nobody really knew what to do with the people from Decapolis, okay? Other than we just don't go to that part of town because they're not like us, okay? So this is a snapshot of the world that Jesus knows the disciples are gonna find themselves in. When he's crucified and resurrected. Divided religiously, politically, ethnically, culturally, socially, racially. And so, what does Jesus do? He prays, he goes to the Father, and it becomes really, really clear that this is the prayer of someone who apparently has very, very little interest in, like, birthright supremacy. No interest in it whatsoever. He's a savior that is totally unmoved by power or political clout. He's unmoved by these things. Things that are so attractive to so many people in that empire, so many people even in that religious system of the day, and dare I say even so attracted to today. That power. The Savior who talked about the last being first, being a servant of all, laying down life for the sake of others, denying self, healing the hurting, caring for those who are poor, elevating the marginalized, freeing the oppressed. This is Jesus. Jesus did not build nations. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't build nations. He was a carpenter. Jesus built tables. And at tables is where you experience community. A community of footwashers and peacemakers and cheek turners, subversives who don't look like, who don't sound like, or embody the division of the world that they find themselves in then and today. Jesus prays, I've given them the glory that you gave me. Father, I've given to them the very thing that connects me to you. The, I've given them the spirit of glory, so I know that this is possible. I know that they can be one, just like you and I are one. I know it can happen. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That, that sounds so grandiose, but I know it's possible. And when that happens, the world will know that this is legit. The world will know that you sent me when they're one, when they're unified. So what does he pray for us? That we, you and I, his disciples might be one that this glorious work of the Holy Spirit, who makes us one with Jesus, that the same Spirit would make us one with each other as well. One in faith, one in hope, one in love, one by the work of the Holy Spirit. Then the world will know. Then the world will know. Here's what I know. If you and I, if we, resort to the pattern of this world, which is division, or worse, if we as followers add to the division of this world, we hinder people from knowing Jesus. That is a fact. It is a fact. The devil has been at work since the garden, since the garden, introducing division. And this isn't in my notes, so bear with me, forgive me if I go way too far, but if you go back to Genesis and you go back to the fall, when Satan enters the scene in the form of the serpent, he lies to Eve and says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in, in the garden? Well, that's not what God said, but what did he do? He introduced division, he introduced doubt, and next thing you know, from right at the beginning, boom, Man was divided from God and man was divided from each other. Man was divided from creation and it's been broken ever since. So imagine what it looks like when those divisions no longer exist between God and between us. Imagine what that looks like to a dark and dying and hurting world. They look at that oneness, they look at that unity that makes no sense in the context of the world that we live in, and they stand in awe, amazed that maybe this Jesus thing is real. Maybe this is legit. Then the world will know. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. We're not talking about this superficial stand in a circle, sing kumbaya, you know, yay, we're all, you know, all the feely, gooey stuff. I'm not talking about either, like, questioning, like, validating sin. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about this weird kind of strange unity. Listen, We're also not talking about, like, pretending that we all agree politically. How many of you honestly think, I mean, if you think I have this ability, dude, how many of you honestly think that every single one of us is going to vote the same way in the next election? Is that the goal? We sure act like it is sometimes. What is the goal? The goal is that in our unity, we glorify God in everything that we say and do. We don't betray our family verse. (laughs) That we become the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we might be one. That's the hard work. Listen, the easy work, man, it would be so easy if we would all just check the same box. If we would all just say the same thing have the same enemies, if we would all just do the same thing, that would make it so easy. But you and I are not called to do the easy thing. We are not called to the easy places. We are not called to easy. We are called to the hard work of loving even in our differences. That's hard. That's messy, isn't it? To love in spite of our differences. At the same time, it doesn't mean we overlook sin. Okay. It doesn't mean that we don't take stands. We don't remain doctrinally, theologically grounded. Okay, that that doesn't mean we wash all that stuff away. But it is understanding, listen, that we actually, you and I, we belong to each other. And I know that's antithetical to a lot of our whole, you know, individualistic makeup. But no offense, you belong to me and I belong to you. And we belong to each other. What you do and what you say affects me, affects others. What I say, what I do, affects you, affects others. We're all connected. We're all part of the body of which Christ is the head of. We actually belong to one another, and the spirit that unites us, that makes us that one body, is stronger than anything that would divide us. It is stronger than anything that would divide us. Through the Holy Spirit, there are no divisions for the people of God. There just aren't. And in the absence of this oneness that Jesus is praying for, why in the world would anybody want what we say we have? If they see division in the body of Christ, why in the world would they want what we say we have? If we don't look or act any different than the brokenness around us, and in worst-case scenarios, We add to it with the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts. Why would they want it? Are we doing okay? October 25th, 2021, so just this last October, um, author and, and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, his name's Peter Webner, he wrote, uh, he wrote this in an article. I want to read just the beginning of it for you. Just this October. The election of the elders of an evangelical church is usually an uncontroversial, even unifying event. But this summer at an influential megachurch in Northern Virginia, something went terribly wrong. A trio of elders didn't receive 75% of the vote The threshold necessary to be installed. A small group of people inside and outside this church coordinated a divisive effort to use disinformation in order to persuade others to vote these men down as part of a broader effort to take control of this church. David Platt is the pastor of this church. For many of you that probably doesn't mean very much. I have several of his books on my shelf. He's 43 years old. He ministers at McLean Bible Church. This is what he said. Church members had been misled, having been told, among other things, that the three individuals nominated to be elders would advocate selling the church building to Muslims who would convert it into a mosque. In a second vote in July 18, all three nominees cleared the threshold, but that hardly resolved the conflict. Members of the church filed a lawsuit claiming that the conduct of the election violated the church's constitution. Platt, who is theologically conservative, has been accused in the months before the vote by a small but zealous group within the church of, quote, wokeness and being, quote, left of center. He's been accused of pushing a social justice agenda and promoting critical race theory and of attempting attempting to purge conservative members. A Facebook page and a right-wing website have targeted Pastor Platt and his leadership. For his part, Platt, speaking to his congregation, described an email that was circulating, claiming MBC is no longer McLean Bible Church. It's now Melanin Bible Church. That is a horrific statement. Made in a very public platform for a dying world to see. He writes this, what happened at McLean Bible Church is happening all over the evangelical world. All right, so Pastor Rich, where, <laughs> where are you going with, with this, with that? it's a well known and it's a well documented fact at this point uh, in the united states that people are leaving the church leaving evangelicalism specifically at an alarming rate now the the rate has been a consistent decline for a couple decades but a 20% drop in the last 10 years shouts it shouts most notably it is actually my generation generation x you're welcome my generation X and younger, uh, who are leaving. Now, fortunately, there's a, there's a large percentage of them that would consider themselves deconstructing. Deconstructing, they're peeling away the layers of religious rhetorics, you know, baggage, trauma, all that stuff. They're, they're, they're reclaiming a faith, which is a good thing. Um, but they're seeking a community, honestly, that looks more like take up a cross and follow Jesus, instead of, let's figure out how we can destroy our political enemies. It would be easier, listen, as a pastor, it would be easier, not less traumatic, but it would be easier to believe that people are walking away from the church because they're walking away from faith that maybe it didn't take, right? Or or it's like a prodigal thing, Maybe they see something outside of the faith that's just so attracted to them that they're willing to turn their back on their faith of their love for Jesus and chase that thing in the world. It would be so much easier to believe that if that was true. And I'm sure for some people leaving the faith, leaving the church now, that is part of it. Okay? And that should break our hearts, that people would turn their back on the faith and the love of Jesus Christ to pursue something. Okay? But listen, there is a day of reckoning happening right now for the Church of Jesus Christ in North America. And I've said this before, and you'll hear me say it again, and I don't do this for shock value or to make any kind of a statement, but everything has changed, and we need to wrap our hands and our brains around this. Everything has changed. There's no post-COVID church. There's no post-COVID reclaiming what was before. There's no there's just church, there's just us deciding who exactly it is we think we need to be in the world that we find ourselves in. And if we really honestly believe that God is the author of all creation and can pull man out of dust and breathe life into him, if we believe that's the kind of a God that we serve, there's something that unites us that goes beyond all the division we see in our world today. We've got to realize what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in 2022 and 2030 and 2050. It's going to be different. We have to make that journey together as one. Everything has changed. And you can deny it. You would be like, well, Pastor Rich, you know, he kind of gets on a little platform every once in a while and goes, whatever. You know, there are people a whole lot smarter than me that don't think anything's changed. But as a pastor, as a husband, as a father... I do not have the luxury of living in denial. I intend to pass my faith on in my family and to anybody I come in contact with. What if people, what if people are stepping back because they've read the Bible, they've heard and seen the words of Jesus, and they've concluded that his likeness is missing in so many expressions of the church today? What what if those same people that are walking away right now are actually searching for the community that is the answer to the prayer that Jesus is praying in John 17? Looking for that community of believers who are one with God and actually one with each other. And in that oneness, exemplify something that, that the world can't wrap their brains around. It doesn't make any sense to them. Listen, when you see the oneness that Jesus is describing here, it will mess you up. If you experience that oneness, it will mess you up because you're not prepared to love people who are not like you. It will mess you up. It crosses borders, uh, color, language, politics. When love for other bursts forth past atrocities and horrific things, man, I've seen it. I've been a part of these moments, these glimpses, where you realize, whoa, <laughs> there's a connectedness here, there's a oneness here that transcends anything I could ever transcend. Only by God does it happen. I've, I've got enough of it to, to, to have a taste of it to know that it's there. And can I be honest with you? I see that here. I'm so grateful for this last year. I'm so grateful for your patience uh, and and your grace towards me and my family as we transitioned here and, and this funky time that we find ourselves in and all this kind of different stuff. But I, I get this overwhelming sense the more I pray, the more I spend time alone with Scripture, with God, that, that in the midst of us, there is this passion and this consuming desire for the oneness that we're talking about. It's there. Now it's the hard part of just living it out, and what does it look like? What does it look like? I, honestly, I see a church that works its love for one another out. That if there is a division, if there is a difference, we work that out. That's hard, right? That's, it's, it's so much easier to just call to label somebody, right? If you can throw a label on somebody, boom, it slides them into a camp, dehumanizes them, it becomes their problem, not yours. Guess what? we're all a part of each other, so your problem is my problem. Whether or not you want it, my problem is your problem too. Okay? We're connected. I see a church that works out its love for one another. A church that crosses man-made barriers to show love and to show mercy regardless of who the recipient is. I see a church that's quick to forgive, quick to embrace, I see a church that's quick to love, quick to confess. I see a church that's quick to repent, to repent. A church not confined by earthbound loyalties, but freed to fulfill like a supernatural agenda, something only God can do. Goes beyond the pattern of this world. I see a church loving God, loving people, and serving the world as one in such a way that an onlooking world would want to know why. Why are you like this? How are you like this? A few months ago, as I was praying about where we are as a church, where we need to go, what we need to be about, I, I was getting really excited because you know, uh, I'm wired to go do things. And I was getting excited because I started getting all these ideas. Man, we need to be doing this. Why aren't we doing that? And oh man, look, that door just opened. We should run, you know, do this, do that. I'm all about doing those things, right? And so all of a sudden, as I'm praying and stuff, God just kept bringing me back to this one issue, this idea of unity, this idea of, of talking through this. And man, I was really frustrated, because <laughs> the idea of introducing a theme to you, I don't know, it just seems kind of canned. We'll put some stickers on the wall, you know, you know. It just, it feels, you know, but at the same time, it's important, okay? But man, there's some stuff that we need to do in this region. There's the stuff that I think God's calling us to do in the world. My mind and my heart, they're geared towards doing those things. I stood with a couple of staff members in an empty warehouse on the northwest side of Gary, couple weeks ago. As we stood in this giant, empty facility, my heart started pounding a little bit. My mind started spinning. I started getting agitated and anxious because I know the needs. I see the needs. I hear the needs. And all of a sudden, I, I started getting excited. I started getting excited driving back into town here and seeing the opportunities that we have in this community and the hurt and the pain and the transformation that needs to take place. I begin to see, and if you don't know this, you better wake up, I begin to see the transition that this community of Portage is going through right now, racially, demographically, socially, everything. We as the church ought to be on the front step of those things, modeling what it looks like. I see all of these opportunities and man, I am wired to sit down, grab a few people, and say, let's hash out a plan. Here's the strategic plan. Here's the five initiatives. Here's the seven things in each initiative that we're going to do in this order. We're going to pull out a Gantt chart. If you don't know what that is, sorry, that, that's just what I do. So, yeah, we're going to pull out a Gantt chart. We're going to put a calendar date on everything. We're going to go cycle through this. And, oh, by the way, we've got to figure out how we're going to fund this thing. So we're going we're to figure out how to, how to fund this, and we're going to figure out this and this and this. That is how I am wired. That is how I am built to go chase those things and then here we go, baby. All right, here we go, let's do that. But in the midst of it, it's kinda of like God was like, hang on. You see, it takes a church that is willing to be the answer to Jesus' prayer in, June, in John 17. It takes that church to even remotely be in a position To be and do, any of the stuff that I just said and more. Listen, am I am I saying that we're not going to do anything? No, that's not what I'm saying. In in fact, June will pop around and you'll be like Pastor Rich. I thought this year, I'm like, well, yeah, we're still going to do some stuff. There's going to be some things that come. We we need to be engaged in our region and our world, and there's going to be things we're going to be a part of. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that we will do it in vain if we do not do it as one. The impact of Jesus becomes hindered by the ones who bear his name if a divided world sees division in the church. If a divided world sees a church adding to the division of the world. Adding to it. So this year, we go hand in hand, learning what it means to be one, and then we're going to practice it a a little bit, if that's okay, Uh, posturing ourselves so that the Spirit of God can knit us even closer together. Listen, the psalmist David wrote, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity but it's not just good and pleasant for us to experience it's good and pleasant for the world to see when followers of Jesus live together in oneness in unity so I want you to walk with me here on your seats you've got a handout we'll post this online as well and uh, your handouts have a really small type so that I could get them all on there so they'll be on the screen as well but in, t- in 2022, our focus, our theme is one, okay, and in some of these messages that we talk about, uh, in some of the series that we find ourselves in, the idea of unity and oneness is going to be very overt, like right now, this first series, it's, it's very, going to be very overt. At other times, it'll be implied, this unity, this oneness will be implied, but in all of it, we're going to come back to how it builds unity in the body of Christ so that the world will know Jesus, so that the world will know Jesus. So let's go. The first one is this, divided we fall. So that started today. Today is the introduction, but next week and the next two weeks after that, we're going to dive deep into one chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four. If you have time this week, I'd encourage you to to read it, uh, dive into it yourself. We're not going to spend time in every single verse, but we're going to spend three weeks diving into Ephesians chapter 4 and understanding what biblical unity looks like in the body of Christ, why it's possible even, and why it's such a big deal. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus for a reason. We're going to dive kind of deep these next three weeks and understand that our unity, our oneness in Christ, man, it's worth, it's worth dying for. It's worth dying for. So we're going to spend all that time talking about unity about oneness, and then uh, at the end of January through February, we're going to talk, okay, a series about how to speak about the things that divide. So you can see the description, politics, immigration, race, human sexuality. In a world of social media and division, how are we posturing ourselves as the church when it comes to discussions on the things that divide? Let's talk about that. The fifth message is going to be called perfect love, but those four things you see there, politics, immigration, race, human sexuality, those are four things that I've chosen that I believe that the world is divided on, but I also think the church is divided on sometimes too. I want to make sure you understand a few things as we do this. I'm sharing this with you now because there's a couple of topics up there that may be a little bit sensitive. So if you have children, different things like that. Obviously that last one, Uh, I'm not going to go that deep, (laughs) you know, as far as, like, it'll be fairly benign, actually. But I just wanted to make sure that you're aware, particularly if you're a parent sitting in here, uh, you can have this conversation with your kid, or you can have me do it. Um, But but do you understand what I'm saying? I just use some discretion. At the same time, too, um, I don't think I'm a particularly inflammatory person. I don't, you know, I pick fights, but I feel like I pick the right ones. Um, I I don't throw topics out here to be like, ooh, you should retweet me or that's some other person. That's not me. Um, I'm sharing this with you so you can prepare. At the same time, too, while we are going to talk about things like politics, we are going to talk about things like race and human sexuality and immigration. We're going to talk about where the church stands on different aspects of those things. My bigger concern is how we talk about Those things. That's what this series is really going to kind of really come back down to. The idea that you and I might have different opinions on politics is a given. The fact that you might disagree with somebody else about politics is a given. What we need to understand is how to talk about it because when it comes to those four different issues, the church right now in the world today is horrible at it and it adds to the division. How do we do this as one? How do we do this unified as the body of Jesus? And honestly, not be a punk, right? And not be a jerk about it. How do we have these conversations? Now, inevitably, as you're looking at that list of four, you'd be like, Pastor, you should have picked this one. And what You could, like, do an eight-part series. Listen, you stand up and talk about those four things and not need a break <laughs> after that, Okay? Maybe we'll do that again next year, who knows, if I'm a fan of dying, who knows, okay, but we're going to get through those, and then we're going to wrap that up with perfect love, but then what we're going to do after that is, we're going to do something I think I'm really looking forward to, it's called 140, so we're going to march into Lent together, 40 days leading up to Easter, and uh, we're going to march through the life of Christ as he's working his way towards the cross, and we're going to take that journey together. There's going to be a devotional we all have. There's going to be playlists on Spotify. There's going to be things that we're going to do online with staff every single week and maybe even daily going through this. It's going to be kind of an all-church embrace this thing that we all go through together as one. So 40. And then after Easter takes place, we're going to go into this fourth series, One Vision. A new look at the book of Revelation. <laughs> um. I think that there have been people who have said, this is the end times ever since Jesus died and was resurrected. And every year somebody says, oh, these are the end times. I think it's just always been the end times. And for some reason, when it comes to the book of Revelation, we get kind of spooked a little bit. And unfortunately, sometimes we make the book of Revelation be much, much more about judging the world around us and less of what it is. The book of Revelation is this incredible, beautiful invitation. It's an invitation to the church to be a part of this new creation kingdom that God is ushering in. It's a beautiful invitation that we get to be a part of. And so we're gonna look at that. We're gonna look at that throughout the month of April through June, leading up to Pentecost Sunday. Now that's it. So I know that that's only six months or so, um, I do know where we're going in the summer, because <laughs> that's just me. Uh, I know what we're doing in the summer. I know what we're doing in August because I, I'm committed to doing a stewardship series every August. We're going to talk about one generosity. I know what we're probably going to be doing in the fall. But writing those things down and putting those into your hands might make you think that I'm borderline delirious or OCD or whatever. So <laughs> there's there is this sensible part of me as I get older to put the brakes on every once in a while. Okay, so. I wanted to give you a six-month chunk, so that you can prepare, so that you can kind of know where we're going. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of knowing where we're going. Uh, earlier, I made the following statement: Jesus didn't build nations. He built tables, community of footwashers, peacemakers, cheek turners, subversives who don't look like, sound like, or embody the division of the world that they find themselves in. That we find ourselves in. So no matter where you go in the world today, right now, being at a table and sharing a meal together with others carries with it meaning, doesn't it? You don't just sit down at a table with anybody, do you? It carries with it significance, relationally, socially, spiritually. It says something to come to a table together. In fact, maybe you experienced this this last Christmas and New Year's. You sat down at a table, and it was a big deal, right? To sit down maybe with family members you hadn't sat down with for a year, maybe two years. It's a big deal to sit down and have that meal together. It says something, right? It says something about how we're connected. We're connected with each other. Communicates a message. Can I tell you one of my goals and a commitment that I have for you? I will always 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 invite every single one of you to the table. I will always invite you to the table. The table of communion is a community table. And it's one where we confess, right? We confess if there's been something in our lives we we forgive. It's a place where we repent, where we allow the one who died for our sins, to examine us, to see, do the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart line up with who I say I am in Christ Jesus? We allow him to examine us. It's a place of connection, reconnection, with the one who loved us enough to give his life for us. But it's also this incredible place of belonging. The table is a place of belonging. We recognize that you and I, we're bound together In the love of Jesus, the night that Jesus had this dinner with his disciples, his command was really pointed, really, really pointed. Love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. Seeking to see the other through Jesus' eyes, recognizing that when we love one another, when we are one, the world recognizes Jesus when we're unified. There are no boundaries at the table. There's no separation of gender, age, race, culture, language, social status, nothing that represents the division of the pattern of this world. The lines are erased when we come together as one, as one. I want to encourage you to take out your elements at this time. as you take the bread out. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when you and I receive and and eat this bread, we do this in this amazing acknowledgement that Christ's body was broken not just for me, but for us, that we might be united to one another. So let's eat and remember. you prepare the other side. In the same way, <clears throat> after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So we do the same. I have plans but I want to make sure my plans are surrendered to you and so uh, I pray that for all of us I pray that ultimately Father you're glorified in all of our words all of our actions all of our deeds and Father there may be some here today who are really struggling with whether or not you truly love them this is a, a broken world it's a world full of pain and hurt anger, anguish, division. But Father, I pray that today they would have a sense of peace. I pray today they've seen a glimpse of just the lengths that you would go to, that we might love you and love one another. And Father, we believe in the work of your Holy Spirit, that you can empower us and enable us just to overcome so many obstacles that we so easily throw in the way of being one with you and one with one another. So eliminate those things from our lives. Show us, Father, what it looks like to be moldable, to be changeable. Father, be with us as the church. This is a new day. This is a new time. Everyone has their hard time that they talk about. This is ours, Father. It's, it's strange. It's unknown. It's off the map. But Father, we know that you're the God that will lead us off the map too to the places we don't know anything about. What you're looking for us is trust and faith. So we consecrate ourselves to you today. We put our trust and our faith in you. Help us to glorify you in everything we say, everything that we do. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be the church. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. God bless you. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. God bless.